Good news, NFL fans. DirecTV has expanded the service. If you're a student actively enrolled in a college or university, you can now get NFL Sunday ticket without a satellite. That's great, man. I, I know how much I missed watching my local team when I was away at school. Plus, there's an exclusive student discount. To see if you're eligible, go online to NFLSundayTicket.tv and stream every NFL Sunday ticket game this season to follow your favorite team no matter where you live. Use promo code RINGER at checkout to save 15%. Packages are also available for football fans living in areas where DirecTV service is not available. Part of a 600-year Polish vodka-making tradition, Belvedere Vodka is all-natural and made with 100% non-GMO Polska rye and pristine water. Belvedere has championed Polska rye vodka and superior natural ingredients since its inception and continues their mission with its new Belvedere Single Estate Rye Series. These award-winning vodkas, Smogori Forest and Lake Bartesnik, are two distinct-tasting vodkas born from unique terroir and expert craftsmanship. Craftsmanship is important, guys, especially in a football context. I mean, think about Patrick Mahomes throwing a football. It's the same sort of detail that Belvedere puts into all of its vodkas. Taste the difference and enjoy Belvedere's new single estate rye vodkas on the rocks or in delicious cocktail today. Belvedere is a quality choice. Drinking responsibly is too. the Ringer NFL Show. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Kevin, how you doing, buddy? We are getting into increasingly bizarre places, as our recording says. <laughs> you are in a state park in Los Angeles. I am at a hotel in suburban Des Moines. Yeah, this is amazing. I was driving down the 5 on my way to LA, and I had to pull over because this is our recording time. And this seemed like the best option, so I'm here. I'm parked in front of a sign about the dangers of poison oak. So you well, know you gotta you gotta the, watch out. Poison the, oak season. The, the, the shiny leaves of the shrub grow in groups of three on smooth stems. So if you're hiking, that's what you should be looking out for. Apparently, I also uh, El Tejon in Spanish means the badger, which I have no idea why this state park is named after a badger. The only reason I know that is because. On 30 Rock, they call Liz El Tejon because she makes the badger face. So can we, the, can the, we the more you talk know. about can we talk about another badger that is the focal point of a story I wrote today? We certainly can. Let's get into that some badger be, talk. That would be the honey badger. We're gonna keep going with our training camp tidbits, and then we are gonna talk a little bit about our first theme week of the preseason, which is Wunderkind Week. But why don't we start with one of your tidbits from Kansas City and uh what you talked about with my Tyron Matthew? Well, so I first of all, this is this is our my Wunderkin week kickoff is doing a story on Patrick Mahomes and the plan to build around him. So yesterday I took in Chiefs practice. They look pretty good. It was actually kind of a funny thing because I was talking to some of the beat writers, and this is isolated to this practice. I don't want anyone to think that this is a this is a month-long thing, but they were saying the defense um, looked a little better than the offense on that particular day. That has not happened all the time. There's a couple of things I want to unpack here. Number one is that would be like we talked about with the Packers the other day, a very nice problem to have. I don't think that's the case that the defense is better than the offense. Um, but on the other hand, as was pointed out to me when I was there last year, the defense kept picking off Patrick Mahomes' passes and that a did not matter for Mahomes and B did not uh, suggest anything about the defense once September rolled around. So that was the practice I saw. Um, Mahomes also uh, did his normal Mahomes stuff, which means behind the back passes, that kind of thing. He suggested, he was asked about this. He suggested that it's possible. He says he doesn't want to do it in the game, 
But I've talked to him about this. I've talked to Chad Henney about this. I've talked to a lot of people in the offense about this. A lot of those things we don't think were ever going to happen from Mahomes started in practice as jokes and worked their way into into the real thing because they they were practiced so much. So he said they have to be up big, have to be late in the game. I don't know. I could see a behind the back pass from Mahomes at some point. Now, talk to Brett Veach for a long time after the practice. And that is what we're wanting to get into here because we had a long discussion about the the ability to build around Patrick Mahomes. And what I thought was interesting, Robert, they they when they signed Sammy Watkins last year, at the time, Patrick Mahomes was not a starter. He had started one meaningless game and he had, you know, shown potential, but again, we didn't know how great he was going to be. Guess who knew they were going to be great? The Kansas City Chiefs. And they baked in, starting before he was even a starter, as a rookie, as a backup. They structured every contract knowing he was going to make a ton of money. This is not necessarily unique. Carson Wentz, you know, the Eagles kind of said that they they knew beforehand they got a plan for it. However, what I'll say is that this is what you have to do. If you think you're going to be able to hit on a quarterback, you have to go all in and start planning right now. That means maximizing the four years where he'll be cheap or the five years if you want to run out, right out the fifth-year option. And build a team around him, not only for those cheap years, but then not destroy the franchise once he becomes expensive, once he starts making 32, 33, 34, or more million dollars a year. And so I think I was hugely impressed with the the plan Veach laid out. And and I, if I'm a Chiefs fan, I'm feeling pretty good today. I, a similar thing, it all makes sense. And a similar thing struck me at Rams camp yesterday. I was, I was at Rams Raiders dual practices in Napa. And I was talking with someone in, you know, in the Rams front office about something very similar, just about the timeline you have to lay out. And we were talking about teams retaining their quarterbacks and whether you'd throw one back and see if you could start over the discussion we've had many times on this podcast. And he was talking to me about how you kind of have to make your decision on your quarterback after the third season. If you wait any longer, you're kind of paying for that information. You know, we're seeing that with the Bucks and the Titans right now. You know, the notion right. that they're paying these guys 20 million bucks. And do you really want to? But because they weren't sure, they have to. And you don't want to be in that no man's land. So I just think, for the most part, smart teams are thinking a lot further ahead than we, see, than we would give them credit for. And I put the Rams in that same boat. You know, they've already really taken into account the fact that Jared Goff's fifth-year option is $22 million, and if they re-sign him, which they're going to, it's going to go to $30 million. They've already planned that in. That $8 million is baked into the way they've structured their roster. And if you look at guys like Clay Matthews and Eric Weddle, who they signed this season, yeah, that eight or so million that's going to jump for Goff, that is pretty much exactly what those two players will cost next season. And there's almost no dead money left on either of their deals. Clay Matthews is a $2 million roster bonus. There's a good chance neither of those guys is on the roster next year. So that $8 million bucks that Jared Goff's contract is going to jump up, that is take, it's accounted for by cutting both of those players. So I, I just think that, again, smart teams are very good at grasping this is the three-year plan, this is the four-year plan, this is the practical applications of the money. Because so, oh, I think too often we don't think about assets as actual players and mm-hmm. like, okay, so that 8 million bucks, what is it practically? But smart teams, that's exactly how they consider it. So I think the biggest difference between the Chiefs and the Rams is that the Chiefs have the reigning MVP and probably the best player in football right now or one best quarterback in football. And Jared Goff 
is I'm not going to say it's a risk to retain golf because that's we've seen him be productive. What I'll say is, is that I'd much rather have Mahomes at a huge number and him figure it out with the offense than maybe strip down the offense and have golf try to do it with less help around him. Goff with help around him is a very valuable quarterback. I it remains to be seen what it looks like when it's Goff without without being able to go on an offense. I know you mentioned Clay Matthews and some of those defensive guys. Obviously they're able to spend money on guys like Aaron Donald or even, you know, Marcus Peters and that remains to be seen how much they'll pay him going forward. But I, I'd much rather, <laughs> this is a very simple point, but I'd much rather be paying Patrick Mahomes a ton of money than Jared Goff. Of course, but at, this, at the same time, what are you going to do? Are you just going to let Goff no, go? They're not going to I, do I, that. I, no, so I, now I we, we live I, no, in this no, no, no. world. I, mean, I understand that. I'm saying I would think a lot harder in, in, in a team-building perspective. I'd think a lot harder about the money I would give to Goff, or even if you're, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd kind of play hardball with Goff a little bit. They're not going to. I mean, they, I know, he's going to make $30 I know, million. I don't, I, uh, I, I'm, I don't run the Rams. I think I, one of the interesting points that came up in the conversation was that we can have this thought experiment about what Jared Goff is without Sean McVay, but it's really just a thought experiment. They're not going to have to find out. As long as Jared Goff is the quarterback there, Sean McVay is going to be the head coach there. So we can project what that offense would look like with someone else, but they don't have to. Jared Goff with Sean I mean, McVay I guess, is what I mean, Jared Goff is. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I just I think that if if here's my question, how many and we I've asked you this before, but I want to you know you were around them a couple of days ago. How many guys in the league? How many quarterbacks could have Jared Goff's numbers or better in in that offense? I would say maybe ten, but 10. I also I also think okay. the Rams don't think that number is as big as you do. I the Rams would rather have Jared Goff than Kirk Cousins. Okay. Like definitively. I don't I think that's I think that's very close. That, and I don't necessarily disagree with you, but that's not how they see it. So okay. I don't know. I, I it was a fascinating conversation. I think that you, you know, know I, I had a I, I had a I had a talk couple last year actually with someone. We talked a little bit about this, about how teams I, I, the word is not overrate, so I'm not going to use that. Teams get really hyped up on their guy because A, he's in the building and he's familiar with these guys. And B, the alternative of not being hyped on a quarterback is is awful, right? Yep. Like, that's really, really bad. When you it don't, seeps when into you every other aspect of your when organization. When you aren't excited about your quarterback, everything sucks in your building. Yep. And so I understand why... You know, man, when I was in New York last week and I saw how Eli Manning operates in that building, you kind of get it. Like, he's so yeah. nice to everybody and he knows everybody's name and he's doing all these things to organization. He's giving people time. And you're like, oh, man, like, I kind of wanted to sign him to an extension. I'm just looking at him. Just He seems like a great guy. Like, and I, what I'm saying is, is that there's an attachment to the quarterback position that at some point, makes teams act irrationally. And I'm not saying that's 100%. happening with the Rams. I'm not saying that's happening with the Rams because Jared Goff ha has produced. I'm just saying that when you're outside the building, it's a lot easier to say, cut this guy, get rid of this guy, trade this guy for a ham sandwich. When you're inside the building, it's it's a more emotional decision. And you can sort of see that when you're in the building and you can see why organizations talk themselves into some people. I'm, I'm, I'm working on something about this. I, mean, I think it's one of the more interesting aspects of the entire league. 
And, and that's what we're going to see. As the analytics kind of community has become more prevalent in the football world, I think that there's been a movement toward being more cold and calculated with this whole thing. But the aspects of how it will affect your locker room and your organization are huge. If everybody in the locker and I'm not saying the players should make personnel decisions, but if everyone in the locker room looks at a $30 million contract for Jared Goff and says, that makes sense, that matters. Because the way that the players feel like the money should be allocated affects how the players think. It affects how many types of players you'll be able to retain early in their contracts. It it ends up coming back to you when it comes to team building value in the end, even if you're overpaying the quarterback a little bit. And I think that's an aspect that people outside of this don't really take into account or give enough credence Mm. to. I think what's what's interesting is you know people like this, I know people like this, play callers, assistant coaches, whatever, who secretly, if you get half a beer in them, say, you know what, I, you know, so and so did this in the offense, but I could do this with the back of the third string. You hear it not all the time, but there's at least a handful of play callers who say that the difference between their backup and their starter isn't as big as you think, right? I've I've heard that from a number of, of play callers. The problem is no team acts op, actually operates like that. They just sort of, it's kind of what, what you alluded to. It's a thought experiment. Okay, how could I do this? If I didn't have this guy, I could do it with my backup. So I think that, I don't think teams will ever operate off that. I think it would take one team to even make the baby step. I mean, even make the baby step. I mean, I, I you know, I think if the Bears got rid of Mitch Trubisky in three years, that would be considered a revolutionary move, even if he doesn't progress as a passer. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm with you. I think that one of the biggest things is, does your culture not want that person anymore? Would you be better off if that wasn't your guy? And I think that's the argument in Tampa Bay. And I think that that's the argument in, in, in overall to a couple different places. I think that was one of the things in Jacksonville. I think the, the mutiny that's currently happening there, and it is a mutiny, started when they gave Blake Bortles that extension. That is where this stuff begins. But if you, mu- the, yeah, you, have, you have Jacksonville and mutiny already? I think that, it, that things are falling apart there to a certain degree, yes. Okay. I think that's a really bad place right now. No, I, I don't. I I thought that I've said it had sort of combustible potential, but it's it's August 9th. Uh, combustible. Uh, all right, I'll give it combustible potential. I, is this I would like say, when you said the Bengals season was over during before camp started? I think I think there is growing unrest in Jacksonville. That is what I will say. Oh, I mean, I listen. I I'm I'm with you on some aspects of that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of contracts in the air. The way last season ended was wild. All that, but I'm I'm ready to. I'm ready to believe it's, you know, Jalen Ramsey isn't isn't captaining a pirate ship right now. I, I think we're closer than I think we're closer than you might believe. That's what I'll say. Okay. One more thing I want to say about the Rams. It kind of goes on the same along the same lines of the planning aspect. I was talking to their offensive line coach Aaron Cromer about just the new guys that they brought in, and he mentioned a really interesting point. And it's that so last season. You know, they knew for the most part that a couple of these guys were going to have to step in as starters when it came to the 2019 season. And they had a couple players that did not practice a couple days during the week for veteran days. Mm-hmm. Andrew Whitworth and John Sullivan, you know, they had some days off pretty much every single week. So guys like Joseph Nopum and Brian Allen, who were rookies last year, got to practice with the ones twice a week last season. So their transition has been a little bit smoother than it might be for somebody that wasn't used to these players around them just because they've gotten reps with those guys already for an entire year. 
And I think that offensive line system is something where comfort really matters because the commitment you have to have to play action and those movements is uncomfortable for a lot of linemen mentally. It's hard to commit to it because you're putting yourself in a disadvantageous situation as a pass blocker. So the fact that they've gotten to do it already for a year and this isn't super foreign to them, I think that's going to really help with their transition. I thought that was a fascinating point. It wasn't one that I had considered. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so you want to build out the, the, the Wunderkind point? Sure. I want, do you want, uh, do you have any more training camp tidbits? I want to say one more thing about the Raiders. I went to the Vikings. Yeah. Is that yep. it? Yeah, no, that's it. No, no, no. I had a good time with the Vikings. Had a great time. You know, what I actually talked with Rick Spielman a little bit about was uh, the mental health aspect of it. And I, I thought this was interesting. They hired three people in the offseason. Um, there's an NFL sort of push to have have mental health experts in the building um, for a certain number of hours a week. But they, separate from this, hired three people. And we actually talked a little bit about how they are trying to build a program where mental health is treated as every other injury, as you would an ankle or a knee. And I thought that was really interesting. The football part of it, uh, I'll write it up at some point. I mean, I just think that, you know, they're essentially running it back. And I think there's a lot of potential there. And the Anthony Barr retainment is something that because it's just a guy returning to his team, we don't realize is one of the biggest moves of, of an off of the offseason from a defensive standpoint. Um, you know, I think it just comes down to just little progress and health and just being better than they were last year. I still think they have roster talent. They essentially have the same roster and the same core that I picked to make the Super Bowl last year. I was wrong. I still feel like the truth is somewhere in the middle and they'll be a pretty good team. I think they're in a similar spot to a lot of these teams when you start having to pay everyone. And it's that you get worse on the margins. And that's my concern about them is that for the most part, you're right. I mean, they have a very similar roster. I think that their offensive line is probably better when it comes to the talent based on drafting Gary Bradbury, signing Josh Klein. But when you look at the defense, it's those little things. It's not having mm-hmm. Sheldon Richardson and having Shamar Stefan in there instead. Yep. It's now having Anthony Harris be your starting safety. And if you get hurt there, there's no one really behind him that you feel great about. So and those are the things that can come back to bite a team. I believe in them. I think that they have a really good chance to be a double-digit win team this year that contends in the NFC. But I do think the one difference is that those little tiny incremental changes on for your t- – you know, the the 22nd starter, the 23rd guy that's the first guy off the bench, that's where they're worse. And you just have to hope that they don't get hurt because unlike a team like Philadelphia who has a ton of depth, this team does not. And a ding here, a ding there can really come back to get them. I mean, they did not expect to bring Anthony Barr back this season. Not at all. He was not in their financial plans. Well, no, I mean, he was was with the Jets. He committed to the Jets. And then he was like, yeah. But this is also know. like we were talking about this three-year outlook where you have this plan of how the money is going to go, everything else. You know, teams rarely get snuck up on when you're as smart as, at managing the cap as the Vikings are. And this bar thing mm-hmm. snuck up on them. I mean, it required them to give him a deal that's not structured similar to the way they normally do their deals. It required them to push Eric Kendrick's base salary down and give him a signing bonus, which they never do. I mean, this team is really trying to make the most of the this season because they they already thought it was over. They thought that group that they had was already gone with Barr leaving. Now they know it's over next year. So their timetable sure. to me is fascinating. But I mean, yeah. I, listen, there's there's all the potential in the world for them to hit on some of these draft picks and be 
right where they need to be, whether that's of course. Derek Bradbury, whether that's Irv Smith Jr., who they're going to pair with Rudolph. I mean, I think that there's, um, you know, I, listen, we talk a lot about Philadelphia, and I think Philadelphia is probably going to make the Super Bowl. But, you know, that's we I probably overrate them because they sign a lot of guys that I know or they 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 see a lot. Of, they have signed guys like Malik Jackson, who we've seen ball out in two places now on an affordable contract for ten million dollars a year. But one of the things that we do a really bad job of projecting, I'm just talking about myself and I'm talking about the media in general, is which guys we don't know about are going to give the exact same production as Malik Jackson for $400,000 a year. And that's the hardest thing this time of year. So here's the difference to me. The, the Eagles are in a spot that the Vikings used to be where they don't have to rely on those rookies. You know, the Vikings were in a spot right. a couple seasons ago where you're, you're not even starting your first round pick. They were in that spot last season. And you, you have diff- Neil Hunter wasn't even a starter at the beginning of his career. Now, the Vikings are in a spot that's more similar to the Saints, where you need to hit on those guys right now in order to be the best roster you can be. And I think that change matters. It can work if you hit on the guys like the Saints do. We've seen it. But it's a little bit more difficult, and the degree of difficulty is higher than it is for a team like Philadelphia. I think that's the transition. I'm not saying that they're any different than some of the best teams in the NFL, but they're different than they were a couple years ago. That's that To me, that's... That's the change. Uh, what are your What's your Raiders tidbit? I just think that you, when you look at just how much turnover that team has experienced, it is jarring. I mean, it's really jarring to just see all the new bodies there, and that's kind of why the Gabe in, the Gabe Jackson injury that happened yesterday is such a bummer if he misses time mm-hmm. because you're looking at that offensive line and you're like. You, know, you can make something happen with this group if Colt Miller's even a little bit better. I mean, Richie Incognito, for all you think of the signing, has been good the last couple times he's played. You still have Rodney Hudson. Even if Trent Brown's an overpay, he's a massive upgrade over what you had there last year. So I just think that, you know, and not even mention Antonio Brown, Tyra Williams, everything else, you know, that team just has so much more talent than it had a year ago. And if you have any sort of faith in Derek Carr in that offense, you know, there's a chance that they could surprise some people. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how hurt Gabe Jackson is, everything else. But, you know, I understand having a plan and having an identity and all this stuff and why it matters. And I don't necessarily mm-hmm. agree with a lot of the ways they spent their money, but I do think it kind of jumps out to you where, wow, you know, this is a very made over roster. Let's see what they can do with it. Hey, can I run a conspiracy theory past you? I heard the other you, day from someone who sort of knows John Gruden. You certainly can. That the Nathan, well, I love Nathan Peterman thing or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, was, was to distract and get Antonio Brown out of the headlines. John Gruden's that, just like a genius. He, well, no, he was That's just like, like some man. Trumpian behavior. That's he incredible. Was just, he was just like, man, someone ran this past me the other day, and I, I've, I, I'm thinking about it a lot. They're just like, he saw the Antonio Brown injury coming. He knew it was going to be kind of a wacky story, and people were going to talk about it. So just drop a just a harmless bomb, get Nathan Peterman pumped up, maybe you know motivate Derek Carr a little bit. I, I think if that's if it's true, and I have no evidence, I've not spoken to John Gruden um, uh, about this particular comment. So I, I'm just saying he's playing he's playing some 4D chess here. One more Rams tidbit before we move on to our Vunderkin conversation. Uh, I was watching their offense for a good chunk of the two days I was there just because I'm very interested in their offense all the time. But uh, they used a lot more 12 and 13 personnel during the sessions I saw 
than you would think from that team. And they did some interesting mm-hmm. stuff out of it. So I would be surprised if we saw nearly the amount of three receiver sets that we saw last season. So you can take that into account from a lot of different perspectives, whether it's them kind of overcoming their Super Bowl failings. And you know, I talked to McVay a little bit about that yesterday, and I think he had some interesting things to say. I'm writing about it for next week. But also from a fantasy perspective, if you're looking at those three Rams receivers and there's somebody that you think is right there with them, I would let the knowledge that you were not going to see those guys on the field as much together kind of be a tiebreaker for going in a different direction. Okay. That sounds good. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. With two-thirds of guys experiencing noticeable hair loss by age 35, most guys assume losing their hair is inevitable as they age. Some don't care. Some shave their head. Some embrace hats. Lord knows I do. But what they don't know is that they are FDA-approved medications designed to stop hair loss and even regrow hair. That's why we're excited to partner with our sponsor, Roman. Roman makes it easy to get safe, FDA-approved hair loss treatment, all from your phone or computer. And when you go to GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL, your online visit is free. Consult with a U.S. licensed physician through their secure online platform. No awkward conversations with receptionists or reading bad magazines and waiting rooms. Once your doctor ensures the treatment will be safe and effective for you, Roman's dedicated pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping and discreet packaging. If you're noticing unwanted hair loss, Starting treatment early is key, and Roman can help. And today, Roman is giving the Ringer NFL Show listeners a free online visit at GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL. That's GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL for a free visit to get started. Go to GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL. Let's get into our Wunderkind conversation. That is the theme week at TheRinger.com next week. We like doing these because... It's a fun way to kind of package ideas for the preseason. And I think you can go a lot of different directions with the Wunderkind side of it. You know, you're kind of seeing it from a more player-driven perspective. We've talked so much about how young the league has gotten. So when you're thinking about this concept as it relates to overall roster construction and the youth of the NFL, what are you thinking about? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, the league, Football Outsiders has a thing called snap weighted adjust uh, age. And what that essentially says is the league has never been younger. The amount of players, not only on rosters, but on the field is, is alarmingly young. The average age is about 26 years old. Now, what's interesting about age 26? Well, it's the fourth year of a rookie deal. If you come in at 22 and that's not an accident, guys, teams really, really like cheap players. What I think is happening now, number one, the Patriots and the Rams were dead last in rookie snaps played last year. That's something really important to, to, to note. And even though, you know, the football outsiders analysis basically says half of the playoff teams were young, half of them were old, et cetera. Only really the Legion of Boom Seahawks, who had a handful of Hall of Famers drafted in the middle rounds, uh, won the Super Bowl while being an aggressively young team. I'm, I'm going to write this next week. Um, I'll have sort of more. This will be more thought out um, in print and have some have some comments from some folks. But what I think is interesting is this now, the conversation you had with the Bills a little bit too, just about that. Yeah, like, no, that I, I mentioned, I mentioned, yeah. I mentioned my conversation with Brandon Bean and, and McDermott about this. Um, but there's obviously other other teams like that um, who are relying on veterans a little bit. I, I, I actually, I want to save most of that stuff for the column. But what I will so, totally, say, no, no, I understand. I, no, I, I was, no, I no, 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 no. But but, just, but I, I, I wanted to get like into something connected. else. I wanted to get into something else, which was. That the CBA in year nine, it's kind of funny because it's expiring next year, has sort of worked 
now is is working now for non quarterbacks in a way that it did not for the first six, seven, eight years. Now, again, the vast majority of the CBA has not worked for players. The rookie wage scale has really changed everything. But I think that now you're seeing one thing that wasn't happening three years ago, four years ago, certainly. It was actually happening a little earlier in the CBA, but it, there was a lull period where if you were a non-quarterback who deserved big money, you just weren't getting it. And I think that yep. changed a little bit with Khalil Mack. I think that certainly changed with Bobby Wagner. I mean, there's a lot of these guys who are getting the money they deserve now. And I think you're sort of seeing a a rebirth for non-quarterback veterans just over the past year or so. What happens in the next CBA? I got no idea as far as that goes. Um, but I do know that I do know the structure will probably change a little bit and it'll be interesting to see if that resets because I think right now it's a good time to be a non quarterback free agent. Cause there's a ton of money to be spent. Look at Frank Clark. Yeah. Speaking I, of the I chiefs, a, I had a conversation with uh, somebody who handles money for an NFL team recently. And we were talking about just the idea that even if it'll never get to this degree, the kind of the player power movement that's happening in the NBA is influenced the yeah, NFL. That's not going to happen. To some degree, but it's it's to some degree. Yeah. I think to some degree, players are trying. There just aren't as many guys in the NFL that mm-hmm. have that sort of sway. They never will. But a guy like Aaron Donald does. I, I no, mean, it's, I, I, Aaron, I, I I disagree. I think the franchise tag kills everything. I don't think that's true. I I really don't think that's true. I think it doesn't kill everything. To some degree, these guys can say "fuck you," I'm not coming. To some degree, they can, and the list of players that can is so small outside of quarterbacks. But some of these guys can influence some. They have some power. It's a very small list, but some guys do. Here's the problem. The problem is the franchise tag in a very narrow way works. I remember talking to someone from the player's side when Kirk Cousins kept getting tagged by the Redskins, and they were like, look, is the franchise tag perfect? No. In many cases, it sucks. But Kirk Cousins is making $23 million a year, okay? If if the Raiders had played the Mac thing differently and actually wanted to pay him, that was just a matter of just not wanting to, to pay him really anything, apparently. Um but they could have just kept they could have tagged him twice if they wanted to and let him let him play out everything and, and they could have had control of him for a while. So Aaron Donald, it's if he if he wanted to sit out, that's fine. But he's, you know, giving up I don't even know what the tag for an interior line would be. Would it be about fifteen or sixteen? About fifteen or sixteen, but he's making twenty one. Yeah. And then it would rise no, but then it would rise the second year. I Aaron Donald got paid. Everything worked out with that. But what I'm saying is NFL teams, it's not just about using the franchise tag as a literal device to keep players. The the biggest function of the franchise tag in all 32 buildings is the threat of using it that accelerates contract negotiations. So of course I that's think, true. No, but what I think is I think you're you I think you're really not can you give me an example of a player like you know, I, I give me an example of a player who could force their way to a very specific team, like Anthony Davis did. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think players are going to get picked. I just don't think that's possible. I don't think it's about forcing yourself to a different team. I think it's about forcing yourself to get the contract that you feel like you deserve. Right, because which, I, you, which it, most players can generally get. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it takes a certain type of player now. Oh, right, no, of course, non quarterbacks. Right, no, of course. 
I don't. I'm talking about stars. I'm talking about stars. Yes, I don't think you can force yourself to a different team like you can in the NBA. But I think you can get the contract because it's the same conversation we were having before about the effect it has on your locker room. If the Rams players are sitting there and saying, "What the hell are you doing? Why are you not paying this guy? Like we we need him in the building." That is the type of thing I think matters. And that's why I think that if people like Aaron Donald, I think Bobby Wagner would have been in this position. If the Seahawks season was starting and Bobby Wagner was not there, every single guy in that locker room would look around with their hands raised being like, what is going on? And I think that's why it matters. I think that's how these players can wield their power. Because if you're going to tag Bobby Wagner twice, I think you're going to have a really pissed off group of players in your building. Sure, I I understand that, but what I'm what I'm saying is is that it's not uh, the player empowerment thing about the in the NBA is not only getting the the contract that a player deserves, it's also about getting to a place a market they want to play. And that will they, never happen. The the, the the you're right. The layer of control that players have in the NBA will never will never be replicated in the NFL because of that. So yes, you can get one half of that, which is you can get the money, yes. but you might have to go to a team that either has the money or the team that, that, that you want that you are currently on. I don't think that you're not, you're not going to have the best of both worlds. Like, like the NBA does it's a completely different league. I, I'm with you. And I think the one thing that I would, the one kind of tweak about this is that players were always getting the money in the NFL when they were getting, hitting free agency. But they mm-hmm. weren't necessarily getting the money when they were negotiating with their own teams. And I think that is kind of a transition that's also happened. I think you can make something, even if it's not all the way, I think now superstars can make something closer to their actual market value with their own franchise, like Aaron Donald did, like Bobby Wagner probably did. Just because, mm-hmm. again, the threat of that and the threat of I'm not coming, I do think that has more weight than it used to because I do think that threat is a little bit more real. Yeah, I mean, you you will still take a discount if you sign with your own team before free yes. agency. I just playing playing through free agency is so unbelievably hard for a player like Bobby Wagner. That's again, that's the unfairness of the franchise tag. Bobby Wagner and Aaron Donald won't hit the open market for at least two or possibly three years, whereas you know, CJ Mosley does. I think the gap is smaller than it would have been three years ago. I think there's still a gap between what you make on the open market, what you make from your franchise if you're a superstar. But I do think the gap is is closing just because, again, I think these the players do have a tiny bit more power. That's what I'll say. Okay. Uh, so my side of the kind of the Wunderkind conversation is that, you know, I'm writing about this. We've talked about this a bunch. I feel comfortable saying it now because it's kind of on the horizon. You know, 15 offensive play callers this season. It's 15, not 16. Uh, Kevin O'Connell in Washington is also a first-year offensive coordinator, but he's not calling plays. Mm-hmm. So we'll have 15 guys this year that are going to be the offensive play callers for their teams that weren't last season. And I said that to Sean McVay yesterday, and his response was, no shit. That was literally what he said to me when I told him that. And that's been the response I've gotten from a lot of people. Every single person I've said that to has either said, wow, or "Are you seriously, or everyone is shocked. And I don't think they necessarily should be because we have reached the, Sean Mc, the post-Sean McVay world of the NFL when it comes to what teams are looking for. And we were kind of getting there a little bit last year when you think mm-hmm. about Matt Nagy and you know Frank Reich isn't a 38-year-old guy, but he, he's a coach in the same mold. And it's really interesting because I think that I understand that model. I think that there's a lot of credence to that model. You know, Matt Nagy said that he really believes it's the best one if your quarterback and your head coach have a consistent, constant relationship and connection, if you're always nurturing that, 
then that probably is the best way to go about it. But I feel like, you know, again, something we've discussed, a lot of these things are going to fail because the coaches that are put in these positions don't understand why guys like Sean McVay, Andy Reid, Matt Nagy, Frank Reich are successful. It's way beyond what kind of cool shit can I draw up? It goes into personality management. Like John Dorsey told you to tell me that you need a guy that's a CEO. You need a guy that is somebody that can really kind of control your locker room and understand what players need. That element of a head coach is important, even if you are an offensive genius. And that's going to be the challenge to guys like Cliff Kingsbury, to guys like Zach Taylor. Mm -hmm. You know, we know they know offense. They got to these jobs because they know offense. But can they manage an NFL locker room? And so I'm going to do a series of stories here over the next week to 10 days, analyzing this movement and also a handful, a half dozen of individual cases associated with this movement, because I feel like it's, if not the biggest story, one of the biggest stories about the NFL in this season. Are you okay with me talking about the Dorsey thing real quick? Yeah, of course. Okay, okay, okay. So um, just so everyone understands what Maze is talking about. So I talked to John Dorsey, and one of the things I asked him was a, a question uh, for, for Maze's package. Um, and I asked him, I said, hey, listen, you know, how much did Freddie Kitchens maximizing the quarterback impact his hiring? And, and is that, you know, the best way to do it? Blah, 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 blah. Pretty standard stuff. And he he pushed back on the idea that this was a scheme decision. And I thought that was which really I love. He, he basically said, listen, Mike Tomlin, Pete Carroll, Bill Belichick, pretty good coaches, all defensive coaches. And what 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 Dorsey basically said was that Freddie, you know, applied constant. What was the phrase he used? Constant, constant, uh, constant, fairness. fair, constant, Con, yeah. fair firmness is what he said. Yeah, constant, fair firmness that earned their guys trust. And I thought that was a really good way to put it. Some of my, yeah. my, my entire conversation with Dorsey will be published on the ringer in two weeks, something like that. Yeah. Um, so you can look out for it there, but the, um, that was the gist of it. And I thought that was a really interesting point. Cause it's so easy to say, a, you know, platitudes about how good the offense was, or just like, you know, just say he's a leader of men and leave it at that. But he, he, you can tell, and Robert reading the, those comments when I sent them to you, you can probably um, figure out he was so specific that he'd obviously been thinking about this for a long time and how Freddie can lead this team outside of the scheme. Absolutely. And I think that that's where a lot of these guys are going to succeed or fail. And Freddie said the same thing to me when I was in Cleveland. You know, he pretty mm-hmm. much said it. The conversation he had with John Dorsey and Jimmy, Jimmy Haslam, there wasn't a lot of Baker stuff involved in it. And I feel like that's well, really... Well, I mean, by the way, they, they they got to see what it looked like. So of if, course. if they had scored three points a game, it's a different conversation. Yep, it absolutely is. So I, I But I just think that that's, that really stuck out to me. And mentioning Belichick, and I, I'm writing about this for Monday a little bit in the bigger piece that I'm doing, but I don't mind saying it. Mentioning Belichick is a really telling kind of comparison. Because the other trend we've seen about head head coach hirings in the NFL over the last decade or so is trying to find your own mini Belichick. And and all of those guys have failed. To a man, all of them have failed. And the reason I think that most of them have failed, and we've talked about this on the show before, is that they do not take the correct lessons from why Bill Belichick was successful. And I think that is the challenge of this group that is made in the McVeigh mold, even if they're not all necessarily associated with him is that it's not about how good of an offensive schemer you are. It's every other aspect that goes into this job. And it's, to me, nurturing the quarterback is number one, but there are a ton of other aspects of it. 
It's making sure you have the right defensive coordinator. You know, M- Matt Nagy did that with Vic Fangio. What Matt LaFleur did is very similar with what he's doing with Mike Pettin. It's about going out and finding the right guy to hold that side of the, the team down. Like Zach Taylor told you to tell me that you need somebody on that side. You did can you, trust. Did you do any of your own work for this story? I did. I did none of my own work for this story. Uh, it's, it's again, just behind the curtain. We don't go to all the same places. And if we do go to the same places, we don't like to ask for the same people because it's not very professionally courteous. So it, it's, he told me that, and it's, you really, you spend so much time on the offensive side of the ball when you're the play caller that having someone you can trust over there is important. Having an offensive coordinator you can trust to give you the correct information as you tailor your game plan is important. You, know, you may think that guy is a wasted part of the staff, but I guarantee you, if you ask Doug Peterson how crucial Frank Reich was to what mm-hmm. they did on offense in 2017, he would tell you because he was crucial. And Frank Reich said the same thing to me about Nick Sirianni and what he does for them in Indianapolis. So we can talk all we want about what these guys are going to do schematically, but I think that the more secondary ancillary aspects of being a head coach, even if you're the play caller are ultimately going to determine what happens with this crop. I bought a salad right before this podcast started and I've been trying to figure out how to eat it without everybody hearing it. And I just don't think it's impossible. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be possible. Uh, what what so kind tough. of salad? What kind of lettuce? I mean, like if it's arugula, it's a little <laughs> less crunchy. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I just think it's it's a Caesar. So, uh, oh I mean, yeah, romaine. Yeah, that's yeah, some romaine. Be, you're screwed there. Yeah, you'd be. You're, it's a tough one. I what's your what's, what's your salad go to? What's your salad base that you it's like? A mixture, whether it's Caesar or Cobb, depending on how I'm feeling and where I am. Oh, uh, see, I'm much more of like an oil vinegar uh, spring mix Cobb, guy. Listen, man, it is it really easy to to have a bad Cobb salad. And so you have to be in a place where it's like, okay, I'm going to get a good Cobb salad here. Caesar, I think, if you're just in a in a re- replacement level eatery, Caesar is where you're going to go. Yeah, I don't go with cream based dressings for the most part. I, I like my salads yeah, to you, feel a little bit fresher than that. So I, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I understand it's a good point, but I just also, by the way, with the cob, you got you, you know your bacon, your avocado, all that stuff. So it's it, really this is the thing about go, me: go bad no bacon. That. I don't do bacon in a salad ever. The only meat I ever put in salad is salmon or grilled chicken. I, I'm what not a bacon. Steak? Uh, I'll eat a steak salad. I'll eat like, an, uh, yeah, that's sometimes I'll do that. I would much rather do ahi tuna, but I don't like bits of bacon in things. I never have. So I don't, that may seem uh, like a weird take because I do love bacon big, on its own. You're missing out a lot. I I'm I'm pr- probably you. am. I love eating bacon and like bacon on a uh-huh. breakfast sandwich I would do, but bacon on mm-hmm. burger almost never and never bacon in a salad. Well, I don't know what to tell you, bud. I'm sorry. Anything else? I, I think that's it. So uh, here, you got everything you guys needed, I hope. Training camp tidbits, salad takes. Again, please look out for all of our coverage of Wunderkin Week on the ringer.com next week. That will be starting up on Monday. And uh, I will be rolling those stories out over the next little bit. Again, I, I've been working on it for a while. This is the first time I feel super comfortable telling people what it is. But uh, it's definitely my biggest project of the offseason of, and of training camp. And I'm really excited for you guys to see it. And I'm really excited for all of you to see everything we got coming over the next couple of weeks. The so, biggest project of my offseason is me just housing the salad, which is about to happen <laughs> in about two minutes. All right, guys, uh, please enjoy uh, your weekend here. Please continue to read theringer.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening to the Ringer NFL show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We'll talk to you later.